Hi there, Glocal Citizens. It's Florence Adu, your host for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. This week, my guest is Nana Aysen Akiwowo, and we're going to be talking in two parts, the first part this week, the next part next, about her social entrepreneurship journey, which started with an eye-opening experience with healthcare in Ghana and has transitioned into an even wider eye look at how to solve problems using very little. So let's get right to the interview. local citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. I'm your host, Florence Adu, and this week on the podcast, I'm local in Brooklyn, New York, as I've been for the last month or so, and my guest is local, where she's going to tell you she's local, but she's on this side of the Atlantic Ocean as well, by way of Ghana as well. And so my guest is Nana Aysen Akiwowo. She is a social entrepreneur, and she is the president and founder of African Health Now and the soon-to-launch fourth phase of a one-for-one afterbirth care box. So we're really excited to learn more about what that is and hear from Nana all of her exciting stories of being a social entrepreneur working on the continent. Nana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. This is fun. (laughs) Yes, 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 indeed. So Nana, let's get started by you telling us about where you are, where you're local, and something about your craft. I am in Dirty Jers. (laughs) Okay, okay. For for those of you that are not familiar with that term, (laughs) East Coast. (laughs) East Coast term is called Dirty Jers. I don't know why it's called Dirty Jersey, because I don't know why it's called that, but I'm in New Jersey. It's because it was um, industrial. Oh, got it. And it probably because of that God for awful scent that comes through when you cross yeah. over. Yes. Yeah. From um, New York, but from the South, it's the garden state because it's the garden state. Exactly. So parkways. I'm going to work with that. I'm going to be more optimistic. And okay. <laughs> I'm from the garden state of New Jersey. That's where I'm living. Yes. <laughs> but I'm originally from Brooklyn um, by way of Ghana. So, and what is my, my craft? Mm-hmm. Ooh. <laughs> I have a lot of crafts, Florence. <laughs> Let me pick one. My Tell one. Tell us. Um, my craft is supporting Black women across the globe. Mm-hmm. That is my craft. Mm-hmm. Awesome, awesome. So, how are you? How are you doing that? And what what inspired you to choose that as your craft? Like, I know. See, you're being very humble right now because. <laughs> We know that you have this very storied past working in New York, fancy, fancy, fancy. So tell us a little bit more about that. Like what inspires you to move into that direction and a little bit more about how you are inspiring Black women? Black women. Okay. So I guess I always forget or I always assume that everyone has this, the the background info um, because I feel like I've said it so many times and I'm like, does anybody really want to hear it? For those who have no idea who I am. So I do have a about a 10, 15 year career in publishing and transitioned out of that. that so now I'm officially, if someone added this up, they would know how old I am now. They would get, get a twist. And because African Health Now has been around for 11 years, 12 years now. Yes. If mm-hmm. not more, think about that. More. 
No, more than that because I've been married for 11 years. So yeah, more. Wow. So for it's okay. So it's a long time. Oh, wow. I yeah, look at me telling you, no, you've been around longer than that girl. Come on. Yeah. Like I actually did the math in my own head and was like, oh, wow. That's now you're really old. But essentially I started off in publishing and had a family insta tragedy happen. My parents had retired back to Ghana and my dad was living in Ghana and had gotten sick and then kind of forced me into thinking about the healthcare structure on the continent. So through that, I launched I launched the very first health fair, which was just kind of like a community-based, community-driven, and which all of our health fairs have actually been community. But this one was just a thank you. And I actually enlisted Florence and her mom, yeah. her mom as a registered nurse who was in Ghana at the time. I enlisted them to be volunteers. And that first health fair allowed us to screen about 350 people around non-communicable diseases, uh, hypertension, diabetes. We did dental screenings. We did a whole bunch of stuff that day. But essentially that, my connection to women and African women came from that because that was the majority of the people that showed up. And it kind of created this understanding that if you educate your the women around you in the community and you help them to build community, they in turn take that information back into their homes. And that's how it kind of grows from there. So that was like 2006, I think it was. Yeah, well, we did our first health fair. And since then, HN has been doing health fairs since then, all throughout Ghana, West Africa, in Nigeria. We've even branched out to Nigeria. We've partnered with local brick and mortar facilities, one in particular in Medina, where we now have a pregnancy school initiative where we support market women to get prenatal care, free prenatal care through our through a pregnancy school initiative. And then in that also is where we launched our maternity go box initiative, which then feeds into how we then become fourth phase. So it's actually, it's weird, but connected. So I think we can talk through it, but I think my work in that space through primary health and also community development, being in the community, seeing people and meeting people where they were taught me a lot about women and the resilience of women in our culture. I think it just translates to women everywhere. And there's a certain level of resiliency that women have in us that allow us to be mothers and carry the load of our families and do all of those things. That So I think that's been the, the push and drive for, for me okay. in terms of why I do women things. <laughs> so tell us more about, you mentioned the landscape and of health being something that was like really a mess ultimately it was very so that's what inspired you so so for those of us that aren't in on the continent and are thinking practically about okay so some people are maybe thinking about relocating especially now after you know covid corona mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what was the status of the healthcare system that you confronted when you were looking to solve problems initially oh back then you didn't even want to get a paper cut in ghana yeah like you you didn't even want to get like <laughs> the healthcare system and and i'm thankful that we've been around long enough to see a lot of change. Definitely not where it's not done. I should say that instead of saying where it's not, it's not done. There's more to, to be done. But I think when we started in 2006 and when I, and, and probably before that, but when I first kind of got aware of what was happening, I was dismayed to know that a country that I'd love so much just did not have the infrastructure to take care of the people. At all during that time, and probably even still some some places now, 
there you would go to a clinic and people would be sleeping outside waiting for a doctor to show up. Yeah. That he or she may show up that Wednesday or that Thursday, but I I sat online from Monday because I have whatever ailment. A lot of things were it was in a state where I felt that for us, what we needed to focus on was the advocacy from the patient perspective. And so what AHN was always about was educating people on what they should know about themselves and how they could go into the clinic and talk to doctors and advocate for themselves so that they have an idea. So you should know what your blood pressure is and why would you need to know what your blood pressure is? What does the number mean versus just going there and they them telling you, you have high blood pressure and you actually don't know what that means. You don't know how that affects you. You don't know how you can change it directly. And that was because I think it was probably way more daunting for me to attack it from the medical side, that it's easier to attack from the community standpoint and to activate the community around what they should know, teaching women how to give self-breast examinations for themselves so that when they went, they could say, well, I examined my breast and this is what I feel versus what they were often being, what they were often come up against, which was that. They just didn't examine their breast at all. They didn't touch their breast. Men didn't talk about prostate, but our health fairs allowed them a space where they could sit and talk to other men and learn about what they should ask. They could talk to the doctor right there on site and talk to them and get an idea of the questions they should be asking when they go to the doctor. And I think for when we, the very first health, what things that we learned, like the very first one, we brought doctors from the States and realized that that probably wasn't the most efficient way to do things, not even just in cost, but just in practicality. So like when a patient now, now we, all of our doctors are based, are local. And so when you come to a clinic and you come to one of our health fairs and you connect with the doctor, he can tell you, come back and see me here. Mm -hmm. And now you've created this rapport and relationship, which is oftentimes something that patients didn't have. They didn't know that they could create that. They didn't know that they could talk to the doctor outside of or and ways that they should talk to the doctor to get the questions answered that they needed or ask the right questions. And so the the, the system in Ghana at the in the in 2006 in the early 2000s, I don't know. I, I, I remember being in the hospital and just being like, "There's just no way this could be what it is." Mm-hmm. Like, I, I remember just going. I think if you remember Florence, we did that with one year we did. Oh, it was 06. We did the Star 100 and Star 100 had, we donated incubators to the Kolebu Hospital. Yeah. And Kolebu's NICU didn't have an incubator. Right. And I was just like, well, I, I don't know how you have a NICU with no incubators. Like, right. So how does this, how, how, like, and I don't have a medical degree. And so it was always just from a very base level perspective of just like, how is this working? And so now to see that 2020, you have places like Focus Hospital that does surgical, you know, they've gotten to a place Focus has now this whole big spinal surgical center that does special surgeries. Now you see that there's Ridge Hospital. Now you see that there's an entire new maternity unit at Kolebu that's mm-hmm. different. You see mental facilities coming up. You see conversations around mental health. 2006, no one was talking about mental health at all. Right. But there was no care for anyone that was in an asylum estate whatsoever, no advocacy. And just so, you know, I think we got there at a time where I'm sure people who were doing this work prior to 2006 were feeling the same kind of daunting feeling. But now I think there's a little bit more hope. I don't feel like it's not done, but I feel like we're on the right path. 
I think you're right. And I can say in my own experience around that same time, that was when I first started spending extended amounts of time in Ghana. And I Mm -hmm. had an allergic reaction to something, like something bit my foot and I was having like a rash or something. So I was one of those people. My aunt was like, oh, you're going to go to the polyclinic. This is in Jamestown. Go to the polyclinic and, and, you know, the doctor's there. I was fortunate that there was a doctor there that evening. So I went through the whole process, got my card, paid my 10 cities Mm -hmm. or whatever the amount was, and then saw the doctor who was actually a very good doctor, had studied there. The first thing he was saying to me was, so you're going to take me back to the States? This is a medical doctor in a facility, you know. So yeah, you're like, I don't want to talk about that. I just want you to fix my foot. Yeah. Yeah. So he, you know, he did it. I don't have no exit plan for you, brother. I just want to get my foot fixed. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but that was the state of affairs where yeah. you know, people just were like, it's How do I get out? Yeah. And I mean, it's still, it's still that way a little bit now, but, but fast forward to now and living there and having a health experience, I recently just for my general health, I get it there. My dentist is in Ghana. So I get a lot of my healthcare there. And granted, we still do have a lag. So, yeah. so you, so the, the NICU and the maternity ward, that's still wonderful, but we still are not graduating the number of doctors that we need. I think there's one doctor for every hundred thousand people in Ghana, and that's not enough. That's about right. Yeah. And, and it's afford it. And it's also, so the education, so it then comes to a whole nother, so there's, you go from the healthcare system goes feeds directly into education and I could pass my exams or I could be really smart and want to become a doctor, but the system and the structure is not one that's set up that I can actually afford to go to medical school or I could afford to pursue this past this point. Or are you paying doctors what they need to stay in the country? Right. Or is it, you know, and, and because you don't have a system where doctors can afford to go to medical school, then I am going to take that scholarship to Cuba and leave or that scholarship to wherever and go and and live there and never come back. Exactly. Um, and so it's definitely been because the education system hasn't caught up um, in a way to the demand. There is a brain drain. There is a even an internal brain drain where you will have someone who is a could be amazing doctor. Just be like, I'd rather be a lawyer. Or I'd rather be a bank teller. Yeah. I'd rather be a taxi driver. I'd rather be anything but a doctor who shows up to work every single day at a government clinic, works, 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 and doesn't get paid. I, exactly. I yeah. And being there during Corona was even more. Yeah. Telling. Yeah. More telling. It's, it's, they were trying and, you know, we minted a, a new facility that kudos to, to the administration for getting that done. But we have hundreds of facilities that had been started that weren't completed. So there are 80 facilities, medical facilities that are or were set or are set to be open this year or during this administration. Well, that's not going to All incomplete. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's unrealistic to think that you're going to even be able to open them all when they should have, these are things that could have been happening for the last four years, but it and, it's took- not just, and it's not just this administration. I remember I, oh, I, yeah, there was a year when there was a time when, and, and this is not to badger in any way, do a beat down on Ghana and what yeah. it's gone through. I think we also understand that the infrastructure comes from a systemic space of how the country has had to survive post-independence yeah. Yeah. and sacrifices that had to be made and were made and things that, things that were done wrong, things that were done right, but sabotage, whatever that narrative is. 
took all that into consideration. But I think if you remember, there was a time when we were going to launch mobile health vans because we wanted to. Mm -hmm. And I remember finding this company that outfitted RVs into full clinics. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I want to do this. And I remember calling the guy and he was in like some podunk town in America. And he was like, oh, wow, I just came back from Ghana. And I was like, really? Why? And he was like, oh, we just delivered a fleet of RVs. And I was like, I don't understand what you're saying, sir. (laughs) He was like, yeah, we just delivered. Your government just bought a fleet of RVs that were like mobile clinics that we outfitted for dental. We outfitted for OBG. We outfitted for eye care. And I was just sitting there. I was like, no, 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 no. I don't understand. When did you? He was like, I just came back. Wow. And we got, we just, we delivered. And he had a fleet of, I mean, I mean, it's been a few years, so I don't want to, I don't want to throw out a number, but it was more than two and less than a hundred. And he had delivered to Ghana. And I was like, I've never seen one. And And they, they they never got, they never got rolled out. What? But they exist. Wow. And and they never gotten rolled out. And it was because they got in towards the tail end of one administration before the next. And I was just like, so where, where are the clinics? Where are the mobile clinics? And are they going out? And so, you know, it's like, it's not that it's, we are without the capacity to do the things, but we're not above or so far behind that we can't roll out 80 clinics. We could legit roll out 80 clinics. In wow. fact, we put our efforts and energy into sure. legit facilitate and provide proper care for all of the government clinics yeah. that we currently have so that they could be all updated. They can be all in the infrastructure could be great, but that's not where we, that's not what has been prioritized. Right. So for us, you know, even with us and in our partnering with a, a government clinic, we could have easily built a, done a capital campaign to be like, we're building our own clinic. Mm-hmm. Do I need another clinic? No. Do do we need another building structure? It's like, do I need another liquor store? No, I don't need another clinic. But we have so many clinics. Why don't we partner with something that's local and help them yes. kind of increase their capacity and impact versus just building another brick and mortar structure to do the exact same thing? Whereas, and, and for us to build it, we would have to be private. For us to be private means that we'd have to charge a different rate. There were all these elements and we were like, that still ostracizes the demographic that we're trying to reach. And that demographic is our middle to low income, which is a majority of Guyanians, the percentage of Guyanians who really make an affordable wage is small. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Super small. Like when we talk about the 1% of wealth in America and we think that it's just like, oh, it's everybody lives in Calabasas and 1%. And you're like, what is that? No, like it's really... The one percent in Ghana is really, really, really like a real one percent. It's like a yeah. real, yeah. <laughs> it's a real. It's a real six people. It's really six people, right? <laughs> Everybody else is, is struggling. Yeah, to make yeah. it through, and then, surviving on what less than five dollars a day. Less than five dollars a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, when you yeah, that's what got us into this space. I think for yeah. Us. So let me ask you, um, because what, from from the policy perspective, because a lot of what you're talking about is policy, right? So someone made a policy, they got these vans, and this is 
just the nature of the beast. We know what it is. But so for you to take us through a little bit of how you were able to create this partnership with the public clinic, because that's not easy in itself. Tell us a little bit more about how that moved. That took a long time. Mm -hmm. And it also took one of the, the, at the time, their director was a volunteer. Oh, okay. So that helped. That helped. Mm-hmm. And legit, as soon as we went in with her, she got transferred. Oh. And we were like, oh no, what do we do now? And so we have spent the past, I think we just got our MOU signed last year. Mm-hmm. But you've been working with the clinic for a few years. We've been working with the clinic since 2016. Okay. Mm-hmm. And not last year, twenty. actually this year, January, the top of this year, 2020. Yeah. We finally signed the most long-standing MOU. After a while, I was just like, just change the date because I don't know how many different ways to send it to you. I just say, right? <laughs> I want to do the same thing, and we've done it, and we've shown that we've been here. We keep coming. We've painted the building, mm-hmm. we bought the medical supplies, we've paid for this, we've done all the things we said we were going to do. So we continue to do it without this like legal or even this like written document, and that is also what was always deterrent from even working with the minister of health. Like if you remember, I've African health now for a long time, had no government affiliation whatsoever. Right. Like, I don't add, I did, we had never reached out to the minister of health and people always wondered, well, why would you be a health in, a health entity doing and providing this type of health service on in Ghana and never connect with them? And it was because of the bureaucracy. Yeah. It was because of how, arduous and painstaking and, and daunting, that process would always be that it was just easier to just bootstrap and just what I want to do is provide service to the community mm-hmm. and so go into the community and then provide said service. Mm-hmm. And then that be the relationship versus I want to provide service to community and now I need your permission or your affiliation or your support. I don't. I can actually show up set up a tent in a marketplace once I've gotten permission from the market to set up said tent. And if I have doctors and nurses from all of the clinics in Ghana and hospitals who are all registered in good standing medical physicians and practitioners in Ghana, and I have a set of volunteers who have the capacity to read and write and disseminate information that is both accurate and understandable to the community, then I will set up inside of Medina Market and set up a health fair. And it is not something that I need to go sit and talk to every government official before they ask for, you know, you know the stuff system, before they ask me for, for a brown paper bag, before they ask me. I don't even have the energy, the question, I don't have the energy. So we just never dealt with it because everything took so long. And by the time you would go through the process, you would just kind of like, I don't know how to say it in, in English. Like you, you would just be so mad you even started the process to even begin with. You'd be like, why am I doing this again? What's the in for me again? Yeah. What's the ROI like in dollars for me? None. I've been doing this for that law for so long. There is, there is no ROI. I'm not, I have not built a mansion off of African right, right exactly. I would say I, I haven't even bought a Louboutin off of that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I've always maintained a full-time job and a consulting job, but African Health Now, because the connection you have with the community 
when you go into a community and you get to see a, a woman who has been massaging some type of church ointment on a tumor that she's had in her breast for years. And it's my conversation and this conversation that makes her go to the doctor and lets her see a doctor and get that. And then we go through the process with her to help facilitate the removal, the examination. That's why I do it. Sure. But other than that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so so I think you've you've kind of answered one of my standard questions, which is the why the where, and that's kind of how you came to be living and working where you are. But I want to put a little bit of a spin on that and ask why the where, particularly for the clinic, beyond that you had a volunteer, was there any data? Like what were the components that had you settle with the clinic that you actually selected? Because in our experience, the fairs went around, we did, you know. Mm-hmm. In different markets. In different markets, market to market. Yeah. yeah. So so how did you come to decide on that particular location? So we had done Tema, Tema Station. Mm-hmm. And Tema Station had a large population of Kayoye girls. Mm-hmm. And then Tema Station burnt down. There was a fire at Tema Right, right. And so just so, because a lot of our listeners... Oh, sorry, are not sorry, not Tema Station is in central Accra. Yes. It is like basically... The center of Accra. It's, it's like the center of Accra. And if you think about Tema Station, you would think about it like if you're from New York, Union Square. Yeah. So identify like Union Square, Prospect Park, any kind of like open place where people have, not even Prospect Park, Union Square, I think is the best idea. Yeah. With the Square, Square Market. Yeah. It's open. Destination hub. Exactly. It's like a destination hub. You have all this transportation around you. So you could get all the different tra-tras in your area, buses, you could go wherever. And it was an open, flat field, like concrete pavement field. Yes. And when we were introduced to Tema Station, we were working with we were working with Razak, and Razak, I forget his name of his organization, a, a youth leadership alliance or something. Yeah. And, and who has now gone on to be like the deputy something of the British Council? Like well, we knew he was going to do that. We knew he was going to do that. Razak is so dope. So, but at the time, Razak had introduced us to. Kayoye girls. And it's, I always feel ashamed that I, prior to that conversation with Razak, I had no idea. I just, I didn't even pay attention to him. Mm-hmm. And that was part of the problem. Like I had gone to Ghana my whole life and never, ever paid attention to this woman carrying this load on her head. Yeah. I never questioned where she was going. I never wondered why she had it on her head. I, I, I never blind. It was like having blinders on mm-hmm. and then going into Tema Station and having the blinders like snatched off your eyebrows. Yeah. And we realized, I was like, okay, now we understood where the women were coming from. So they were majority traveling from the North, from through that Burkina Faso region into Tama, from Tamale down. So they also spoke a different language. So they were not always tree speakers mm-hmm. or airway speakers or Hausa speakers. They spoke Dagboni, which yeah. is a completely different language. When I say completely different language, most people who speak in, within the Akan dialects, there are words and phrases that can be transferred through that you can catch or pick up. But I had never heard Dagboni in my life. And I've been going to Ghana since forever. I speak tree, although I was born in Brooklyn. I'd never heard Dagboni. So nonetheless, so we started working with them and we started to understand what it meant to be a Kayoye. And a Kayoye girl is a girl who carries a load. Mm-hmm. And she carries a load on her head without a set price. So essentially she tells you, she, you go to the market, 
you being the consumer show up to the market and you are about to go grocery shopping. You're going to buy whatever you're going to buy, material, tomatoes, onions, a car part, whatever. You are going to get that stuff from each stall. You're not always going to get a bag. You're not always going to have, there's no push cart. It's not like, right. You don't a buggy. So there's nothing to push this through the market. Sure. So you would then get a coyote girl would come to you with those big metal bins that you see them carrying on their heads. And she would hold her bin and that bin is hers. Sometimes they even pay a rental fee for the bin mm-hmm. to whoever their primary madame is or primary bosses. And they come to you and ask you if you need help. You agree, yes. Usually there's a, she says to you, it's going to be three cities to carry your load. How many stores are you going to go to? And you usually have to have a talk through. Now, what often happens is that they would carry all of that. So that means that everything you get, you put in that bin, and she loads it on her head. Put it in that bin, and she loads it on her head. Put it in that bin, she loads it on her head. She's just loading and loading because you're shopping. You're not carrying anything. And in the end, she unloads it either in your car. She oftentimes will follow you home to unload it. If you're walking, she will do all these things. And you at the end can decide not to pay her. Mm -hmm. You in the end could decide to rescind on what you agree and pay her half or pay her less than or pay her what you want. Mm -hmm. And because she was a Kyoye and that job was so frowned upon, no one cared. And so when we started at Tema Station, the first two we did at Tema Station, we started to really meet the Kyoye girls, really understand where they were coming from, what they were, what life was like on the streets, what life was like for them and how they were struggling. A lot of them were being raped. A lot of them were pregnant and didn't know it. And so when Tema Station had this huge fire, a lot of them relocated to Medina. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so they relocated between Medina and Ablogoshi. Okay. Remember, we did the Ablogoshi market. We did Ablogoshi as well. So a lot of them located to these kind of, they kind of scattered and located. So what we were learning was that Medina was getting a lot of Coyote girls yeah. through Medina market, that they were coming to Medina Polyclinic to get help, or that Medina Polyclinic was doing outreach at Medina market. Mm-hmm. And so then we thought since that was a demographic that was like, it, they were at the core of what we were doing at the time in terms of our mobile clinics in the marketplace, because when you're in the marketplace, you're talking to the market stall worker and yeah. you're talking to the Kyoye girl mm-hmm. and you're talking to the consumer. But majority of the time, you're really trying to get the stall worker and the Kyoye, the people working the market to get care, because those are the people who are not going to do it. So that's how we kind of came to Medina. And so when we had, when Dr. Esther was like, oh, you know, I'm at Medina Polyclinic. Would you guys be interested? We I, we just jumped on it. And I was like, here at the end, if you're there and you're the director, it's going to be easy. We know what we can do some real great work together. And so we jumped right in. And then maybe I think like two months into it, she gets transferred out and she gets transferred to another hospital. And we're like, damn, do we switch? But her other hospital had a different demographic in terms of who the market of people that were coming, the target audience that were coming to that clinic. Mm-hmm. And so we opted to stay at Medina because that's where the people that we wanted to reach were still at um, and felt that we could do some work. And so we've just pushed through and kept working with them, kept showing up, kept being diligent. And and eventually they finally was like, yeah, we should sign up for pot. Right, right. That's awesome. That's a, that's- they come here very often. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, you've been doing a wonderful job. And I'm like, find <laughs> the paper. But that's the name of the game. That's that's that's, that's the name of the game. Diligence. Yeah. Keep showing up. Eventually exactly. they will sign the paper, right? Exactly, exactly. So this is a good time to move into my local speak question. So we want to hear um, a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you've come to value it as local speak? I guess it would be diligent. Okay. It okay. would be a diligence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Diligence, yes. Because that is probably the only thing. And I mean, maybe for you, you can thinking in terms of living in Ghana, it is the only way to really, it, it is a, a level of perseverance mm-hmm. and dedication to constantly showing up each time and doing the right thing and doing the right work and doing all yeah. of the work that will eventually pay off. Right. And payoff looks differently for everybody. For me, it's an MOU. Right. <laughs> right. MOU that finally gets signed. Me too. Um, it's like, yay, you did it. But um, it's, it's diligence is con- nagging the same market lady to get a checkup and she finally gets a checkup and you're like, yeah, you did it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, for me, I think, I guess my word is diligence. And it's like the work I've been doing, even with, as we launch fourth phase, doesn't always reap its rewards in the beginning. It's not one of those kind of like, I did it. I'm paid. I'm good. I did it. I'm gratification does not come from that space, but I have dedicated myself to this space and to this work. And so I just keep showing up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that is the anthem of the social entrepreneur ultimately, particularly black and African social entrepreneurs, because our non-black or of color counterparts, they have a different trajectory. Like they Mm -hmm. do these things in a different way. So I think we have to recognize that and be okay with our diligence is, is our badge of honor. Like we have. Yeah. I mean, I always said it. I know I've said it to you in private and in past, and I've said it to anyone. If I was a white girl trying to save Africa, oh my God, I'd be good. Right. You would be buying those bags. You'd be be so good. If I was a white girl that was like, I visited Ghana for the first time and I just saw what was happening. I just wanted to do something and I raised this money. I'd be, I'd be great. I'd be charity water. Right. Basically, basically (laughs) charity water. Exactly. Exactly. But I realize that I'm, but, but the other flip is that, you know, I'm not a white girl and I'm not saving Africa because I feel sorry for her. I'm not saving African women or working for African women because I feel sorry for her or because I feel like, oh my God, I can't believe it. It's, it doesn't come from that space. I I'm doing it because it comes from a space of when I see an African woman, I see myself. Yes. When I see an African woman in any position, I see my mother, I see my grandmother, I see my aunties. And I think that's part of the way in which our culture even exists is that, you know, you see a stranger, you never just be like, hey, miss, every woman is auntie. Every woman is auntie. Yeah. Every every man is alpha, whether he is your uncle, he is your, he's, he's either bra, your brother, or he's your uncle. Mm-hmm. And it's how you, you know, we're in a, a culture where you're like, oh, sir, or madam, it is auntie, ma, da. And so because it comes from that perspective for me, the work I do is not about, it's not even like saving Ghana. It's right. 
It's doing my part. Yeah. It's doing my part. It's cleaning my house. It's like, this is your house. Yeah. (laughs) Basically. I love that. This is the part of your house that you are in charge of cleaning up. Right. Go clean your house. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. 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 So let's get deeper into the one for one box. So tell us about how that, so you're in the fourth phase. So tell us where you, where, where one was. No, it's called fourth phase. It's called fourth phase. It's called fourth phase. The box okay. is called fourth phase. So, oh, um, okay. we'll okay. start off. Yeah. So yeah. starting off. So when we started doing Medina Polyclinic, mm-hmm. Medina Polyclinic was what we also noticed with Medina Polyclinic is that a lot of the women, the, the market women, were pregnant. Yes. And they were not getting primary care, any pri- prenatal care whatsoever. And because they were Dagboni and they were from the north, a lot of them were opting to go back to their villages. Oh, to, to have their, yeah. And that meant you weren't able to kind of identify what kind of birthing care they were going to have, whether they were going to someone local or they were going to go to a clinic or they were just going to give birth in the house with a midwife. So all of those things. So we, as a, a part of, actually it was weird. It was, it was 017, I think it was. And we were, I was doing a tour of Medina and I was, it was like really hot. I remember it was like Hamatan or something. And it was hot. <laughs> you know, it was getting hot. And Medina is a unit of containers, shipping yes. containers. Yeah. So shipping containers put together to make this kind of, this clinic, mm-hmm. outdoor, indoor clinic. Mm-hmm. And we were inside and I, by 2017, I had already had my daughter. So I was already a mom and I'm in this room and these women are giving birth. Is this 17? Right. And even before that, because... 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 15. It was the first year I'd gone back after having my daughter. Okay. 2015. Mm-hmm. So it was the first year I'd gone back after having my daughter. So I was very fresh in the maternity space mindset sure. having delivered Omolara. And so all these women had delivered and they were like in various stages of labor, all of them, and or had labored, had either delivered a baby or they were in labor. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that in Ghana, we do not do epidural. Right. A lot of our labors are, a majority are very are, are natural yes. to that extent, that natural being non-medicated. And because, and so because of that, people were like laboring, like the agonizing laboring process. Yeah. And I remember I was just standing in this place and it was hot. And I was there's a lot of people doing a lot of, there's a lot going on. If somebody gets stuck, give me an epidural. You know? <laughs> <laughs> just, my universe is contracting with all this noise. I can't handle this pressure. I'm about to have a baby. I'm not even pregnant. I was like, oh my God. And it was just, I was like, so I was about to walk out of the, the, the room and I caught the eye of this lady and she, was wiping. So when you have a baby, you and the baby have to stay in the hospital until the baby makes its first bowel movement. Yeah. And you as the mom also should make a bowel movement or should go to the bathroom as well, just so they know that process. Yeah. And so the baby had made its bowel movement and the mom was wiping. She wasn't wiping the baby. She was wiping the diaper. And I caught it and I was like, what are you doing? And I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, you got this wrong. Like the once he shits in the diaper, that's a rat for the diaper. Like we put a new diaper on. Like I came in real hard. Like, miss, you got right. this. Like, I learned this. <laughs> Let me help you. <laughs> and she looked at me and was like, I only got one diaper. So uh, and I was just like, mm. you only got one diaper. And, and she was like, I only got one diaper. And this isn't a cloth diaper. This is a disposable. No, this is a disposable diaper. Mm-hmm. And so she's looking at me like, we're speaking and we're talking in tree. You know, I'm always, I'm like giving us, she was like, maybe, I don't have it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, 
you don't have a diaper? And she was like, no. And she was so like annoyed with my right, your inquiry. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, bitch, if I had a diaper, I would not be doing what I'm doing. Clearly, I would not. I, I only got one and I got to last till I get home. So he can't poop in this one. And, oh. and I was like, wow. Because I had delivered, and this is apples to potatoes. They're right. not even in the same space. Yeah. I delivered at NYU. I had nothing but diapers. Right. Like NYU had given me, on top of the baby shower that I had that was stupid and ostentatious and ridiculous amount of crap that I received. Yeah. NYU let I went home with diapers. Yeah. On diapers, on onesies, on pacifiers, on everything. Gloves, on a yeah. Pack, on yeah. swaddle blankets, on. I went home with all this crap. And all this lady had was that one diaper. Mm-hmm. And she had no car seat. She didn't have no baby swaddle. She had her entoma, her one diaper, and her brand new baby. Okay. What's entoma? Just so and that is her cloth. Yes. Okay. The cloth that she's gonna wrap her. I forget. It's <laughs> 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 the cloth that she's gonna wrap her baby. That she's either wrapped herself with, yes. or she's gonna wrap her baby, or it's it's the extra piece of cloth that most 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 local people wear or have access to. Yes. And so I was just standing there, and I was like, "Well, no, let me go." I said, "I'll buy you diapers," and she was like, mm, "Okay." And then the girl next to her was like, I only got diapers either. And I was like, well, wait. And so I went to the nurse and I was like, how many diapers do you give the mothers? One. And the nurse was like, we don't have diapers. And I was like, wait, mm-hmm. you don't have diapers? She goes, no, we go and buy it. There's a lady that sells diapers outside, like a kiosk. She goes, we buy it from head. But as the hospital itself, we don't have diapers. Ah. And I was like, sanitary pads? Nope. Mm-mm. And and then it just was like this in my head. I was just like, I don't know how I felt. Like I just felt I probably felt that was probably the most defeated I felt because I was like, you've been doing this work for so long. Right. And it's the thing that's sitting right on your nose that you yeah. see. So a lot of it was like me doing all this advocacy around educating people. You know, know your blood pressure and understand this, understand that, and go to the doctor and ask these questions and be this person and be an advocate for yourself and your health and your family. The hospital don't have it. It's not that I don't want to give it to you. Right. Right. That's going to do it for this week of Global Citizens. Thanks for joining us and be sure to join us next week for part two of my discussion with Nana Aysen Akiwowo of African Health Now. As always, please share, subscribe, and listen wherever you get podcasts, as well as www.glocalcitizenspod.com. As I mentioned and typically mentioned, we have pretty good show notes for each of our episodes. So you can find those particularly at the website, but also in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Again, wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to come back next week. Bye for now.